This morning's scripture is from Exodus 15, verses 1 through 11, the Song of Moses. Then Moses and the people of Israel sang this song to the Lord, saying, I will sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and his rider he has thrown into the sea. The Lord is my strength and my song, and he has become my salvation. This is my God, and I will praise him, my Father's God, and I will exalt him. The Lord is a man of war. The Lord is his name. Pharaoh's chariots and his host he cast into the sea, and his chosen officers were sunk in the Red Sea. The floods covered them, and they went down into the depths like a stone. Your right hand, O Lord, glorious in power, your right hand, O Lord, shatters the enemy. In the, greatest, in the greatness of your majesty, you overthrow your adversaries. You send out your fury, it consumes them like stubble. At the blast of your nostrils, the waters piled up, the floods stood up in a heap, the deeps congealed in the heart of the sea. The enemy said, I will pursue, I will overtake, I will divide the spoil, my desire shall have its fill of them. I will draw my sword, my hand shall destroy them. You blew with your wind, the sea covered them, they sank like lead in the mighty waters. Who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glorious deeds? doing wonders. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks, Thanks be to God. God. You may be seated. All right, if you have a Bible, open to Exodus chapter 5, where we're going to be starting off this morning, and feel free to pull the sermon outline out from your bulletin as well to follow along. I hope you guys have had a chance to be reading through the uh, Bible during the week as we've been going through this. Uh, as Tim mentioned, there is that little sheet in your bulletin that helps you with the reading prompts for the week. If you uh, lose that or you're not here for a few Sundays, you're not sure what you're supposed to read, of course, you can just keep reading through the Bible, but you can always also go on the website at gracefieldbeach.org slash year of the Bible. You'll find all the reading uh, prompts there as well. Um, I hope that as you've been reading too, you may have noticed in the lobby, if you weren't here last week, there's a display, a chance for you to sort of commemorate as you finish each book of the Bible. Um, drop a rock in there. Think about what it was that stood out to you from God's word in this book and maybe thank God for that. And over the course of the year, we'll see those rocks grow and grow as we all read through the Bible together. All right. Well, today we are in Exodus, and we're going to cover Exodus in two parts because Exodus is a book that's fundamentally about authority, about authority. So the first half of the book is about God's authority over oppression, and the second half of the book is about God's authority through his law. And um, Exodus comes on the heels of Genesis, where Genesis is a story about God's word, having authority, and being able to bless. But Exodus brings on some new characteristics about God. The fact that he's a deliverer, that he saves the oppressed people of Israel, and ultimately the oppressed people of all the world from the slavery of sin. And over the course of the Old Testament, what I think you'll find is added texture being layered on top of each other as we learn more and more about what God is like. Now, God's consistent. He's the same throughout the Bible, but we learn more about him as Scripture unfolds. And I imagine as you've read some of the stuff this week on your own, maybe there's some stuff that you've kind of made this face at, like, oh, like, is that really what God is like? Uh, maybe there's some stuff that's surprised you, uh, maybe that's offended you in a certain way, or that's been difficult to swallow. 
Uh, and that's totally normal. That's normal because all of us are in the process of aligning who we are to who God is. And so it shouldn't surprise us when stuff in Scripture corrects our view of God, instructs our view of God, challenges our view of God, because we're constantly growing in understanding what it means to worship and to know God. Quick illustration. Uh, my, this week was back in my 15th uh, year wedding anniversary. So last Sunday night, we went away to the bed and breakfast that we had spent our first night at after our wedding. Uh, it was still there 15 years later, which is uh, fortunate for us. And we were thinking about, over the course of the day we were there, one, how much sleep we were going to have. So much sleep. Um, and then also how much we've learned about each other and about marriage over the last 15 years. We got married. We were very young. We were just out of college. And uh, we had some understanding of who each other were as people, but it has deepened so much. Right? I, I knew Becca was a kind person when I married her, but it's another thing to watch her kindness on display with our own sons 15 years later. I knew that she loved her family deeply when we got married. It was another to watch that love uh, take on such grief when her dad died. I, I knew that um, she was late because she was late for our wedding, so I knew what I was getting into there. <laughs> but it's another thing to see how consistently late she is. Um, don't tell her that. She's not here yet. So <laughs> don't tell her I said that. Um, and, and we went to dinner uh, at the same Italian restaurant that we had gone to as college students, and we reflected on how much has deepened about our understanding of each other over 15 years. And some of you have been married a lot longer than that, 50 years, 60 years, and you've seen how much you've learned about the other person over that time. If we think we can grow in our understanding of knowing one other person, how much more can we grow in our understanding of an infinite God? Now, obviously, the illustration's imperfect because... People don't have the sort of integrity and the same sort of consistency that God has. God never changes. We do change for better and for worse often. Um, and Becca and I will change for better and worse over the course of our life. Uh, but there is a sense in which we remain the same even as we find out more about each other. And the most foolish thing I could do as a husband would be to be like, oh, I don't like that about you. Right? Like, uh, I didn't know you were like that. Go back, go back to how you were before. Go back to, I liked how you were before. Right? <laughs> Becca told me recently, um, you know, when we were first married, I felt obliged to laugh at all your jokes, but now I only laugh at the ones that are funny. Uh, <laughs> now, the, the foolish thing for me to, to say would be like, oh no, my ego wants you to go back, go back to pretending. Go back to pretending, right? Um, how much more foolish would we be if we read Scripture and we're like, no, 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 God, I don't like this. I don't like the reality of who you are. Like, I just want to go back to sort of the Cliff Notes version, right? Like, I want to go back to a sanitized version of you. And I want you to hold that in mind as we go through the Exodus story today, because I imagine for most of us, the story carries some negative emotions, or at least some emotions that are difficult as we see God carry out plagues and judgment, and we wonder, is that really what God is like? Exodus um, brings some added texture to our understanding of God. It doesn't con contradict anything from Genesis, but it helps us understand more deeply God's character. See, when we end Genesis, uh, Israel and his family are in Egypt. Egypt is a good guy. They're the ones who had saved them from famine. Um, Pharaoh is an ally to God's people, but 400 years pass by between Genesis and Exodus, and a new, uh, Exodus 1 says, a new Pharaoh arises who neither knew Joseph nor what he had done. And all that they saw, all this new Pharaoh saw, was that Israel's family, the people of Israel, had created an enormous political problem, that there was this ever-increasing demographic group 
that he had trouble controlling. And so Pharaoh goes from being an ally to God's people to being an enemy. And as the time the Exodus begins, the Pharaoh tries to commit genocide to drive them into submission. But remember what I said about Exodus? Exodus is a story of authority. And the question comes, can a Pharaoh oppose the blessing of God? Can Pharaoh stop the authority of God to bless and to keep his covenant? And when you say it that way, of course he can't, right? So Pharaoh comically tries to stop the blessing of God and fails repeatedly. And um, when I say comically, I only mean in the sense that he is completely unable to do so. There's nothing funny about what he tries to do as he tries to murder the male children of Israel. Remember that because there's going to be a plague later on that will bring justice for what Pharaoh has done. Pharaoh tries to commit infanticide. And of course, because children are a blessing from God, Genesis taught us that, murdering them at birth, or before birth, I would add, would be a wicked act, and God does not allow it. Pharaoh's attempts to block the blessing of God backfire on him. As one of the children he tries to kill, Moses, ends up not only being saved, but saved into his family, into his household. And Pharaoh will sow the seeds of his own destruction on his own dime in his own living room. Because the blessing of God cannot be mocked and cannot be blocked by mere kings. And Israel continues to expand and grow. And the conflict is going to come to a head. Who is in charge? Is it Pharaoh or is it God? Pharaoh, like us, is under this foolish idea that he is in charge, that he is in control, and he can tell God what to do. And so when Moses and Aaron go to, when Moses and Aaron go to Pharaoh in chapter 5, They say to him, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Let my people go, that they may hold a fast to me. I'm sorry, I did that again in the last service. They may hold a feast to me in the wilderness. But Pharaoh responds in verse 2, Who is the Lord that I should obey his voice and let Israel go? I don't know the Lord. And moreover, I will not let Israel go. We might annotate this with, And I am in control, not God. Pharaoh's problem is his defiance of the authority of God, and specifically to defy the authority of God's spoken word. Remember in Genesis, we saw that God's word is able to create the universe from nothing, that God is able to create life from nothing. And now God's word speaks to Pharaoh and says, let my people go. And Pharaoh says, no. Right? We're setting up a conflict in the story because God's word is going to accomplish all it is set out to do. But before we get there, we have to see how God chooses to carry it out. Because over the next 10 chapters, Pharaoh is going to be forced to eat his words. And the Lord is going to use Moses to do it. Look at chapter 6, verse 1. But the Lord said to Moses, Now you shall see what I will do to Pharaoh. For with a strong hand he will send them out. With a strong hand he will drive them out of his land. What God's previewing for Moses is that there's going to be a day coming where not only not only will Pharaoh do what he said he wouldn't do, he'll do it willingly and eagerly. So what is this story about? What's, what's the Exodus about fundamentally? Uh, the Exodus isn't about oppression or deliverance alone, but it's primarily a story about God's faithfulness. God's faithfulness. That God is always going to carry out what he said he would do. And the beginning of Exodus comes all the way back in Genesis 12, where God says to Abraham that he will bless those who bless him, and those who curse him, he will curse. The Exodus is a story about God's faithfulness. 
And so when God speaks to Moses, he tells him about how he appeared to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. And he is the one who has said that he would fulfill everything that he has done, that he would do everything he would say he would do. And look at chapter 6, verse 5. I have heard the groaning of the people of Israel, whom the Egyptians hold as slaves, and I have remembered my covenant. Now, often when we think of remembering, we think of remembering on the far side of forgetting. Like when we think about that word remembering, we think you can only remember something after you've forgotten it. But that's not necessarily true. Uh, For God, he remembers in Scripture, not implying that he's forgotten, but that he has taken up the cause of Israel again. And he's saying, I have heard their pain, and I am going to act. So how old is uh, Moses when this happens? Forty years old, right? That's, that's, I didn't say that earlier in the sermon, so I'll just tell you that. He was about 40 years old um, when he, I'm sorry, let me fix this. When, uh, Genesis, when Genesis ends and Exodus begins, there's a 400-year gap where Israel goes through an increasing period of oppression. Then uh, the genocide begins and Moses is born. Forty more years go by where the people are crying out to God. And then it seems like Moses is in the right time at right place to lead Israel out of oppression in Egypt. And he tries to do it by his own hands, fails. And 40 more years go by before Exodus 6 happens. So at least 80 years have gone by. Why is God so slow to carry out his plan of salvation? God's delivering Israel from slavery, from attempted genocide, and he does it on his own timing. Not because he's faithless, but because God's timeline is rarely our timeline. And so God tells Moses he hasn't forgotten Israel, he's heard their groans, and that he's going to deliver them. And now God tells Moses something that seems too good to be true to Israel. Look at chapter 6, verse 6. Say therefore to the people of Israel, I am the Lord. I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. I will deliver you from slavery to them. I will redeem you with an outstretched arm with great acts of judgment. And I will take you to be my people. I will be your God, and you shall know that I am the Lord your God, who has brought you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. I will bring you into the land that I swore to give to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. I will give it to you for a possession, for I am the Lord. The, the shorthand way of that, if the, the too long didn't read, As God says, I will do everything I promised. And so Moses goes and says all this to Israel in verse 9. But listen to this tragic verse. They did not listen to Moses because of their broken spirit and their harsh slavery. What a sad idea. The very thing they longed for, the very thing they cried out to God for, the very thing they prayed for, when they said, yep, that's going to happen, the harshness of their slavery and their broken spirit inhibit them from hearing it. The people can't fathom the kindness of God. Now, before we kick them too much for this, how is, how, how is this true for us as well today? That the very thing our soul longs for, that, that God would free us from the guilt, fear, and shame that comes apart from Christ. When we hear the message of the gospel, sometimes we say, that's too good to be true, right? That's just too good to be true. And because of the harshness of the slavery to sin and our broken spirits apart from God, Sometimes we don't even want to listen to the message of Christ. Well, the Exodus uh, continues with this account of the direct intervention of God to deliver his people. And that direct intervention happens through Moses and through his brother Aaron. And this raises a question, why doesn't God just do it himself? 
Why doesn't God just appear in a cloud before Pharaoh and say, let my people go? Why does he send Moses? Why does he send Aaron? Why does God have this preference for why does God have this preference for human agency? Why does God work through people at all? Now, let's be clear. It wasn't because Moses was super talented. Um, he, in fact, describes himself as someone who's slow of speech. It wasn't because Moses was incredibly faithful. In fact, he told God at one point, can't you just send literally anybody else? It wasn't because he had a good moral record. As I mentioned, he had killed a man. Um, it, it wasn't because of anything uniquely capable about Moses, though God had set him up for this role throughout his life. It was because God chooses to work through people. He chooses it in the Old Testament. He chooses it in the New Testament. That God is patient and, op- and gives us an opportunity to carry out a plan of salvation with him. This is, you guys know this, who are parents. You get a chance to participate in the cultivating of a life that is made in the image of God. Why on earth would God trust you to be a parent to your kids? Why would you trust me to be a parent to my kids? Um, that's a question I ask a lot. Um, right, that God chooses to work through people. Why does God choose to work through you in sharing your faith with maybe family members or friends? Why doesn't God just reveal divinely to people or drop a Bible on their heads or something? Why does he use people to share the gospel with others? It's the same reason that he does with Moses as well, that God delights in allowing us to partner with him in his mission throughout the world. Well, Moses goes to Pharaoh and asks for the people to be let go without any consequences. And Moses uh, repeatedly is faced with objections from Pharaoh that without consequences, Pharaoh is never going to turn his heart. The Lord predicts this in Exodus 7. He says in verse 2, You shall speak all that I command you, and your brothers shall tell Pharaoh to let the people of Israel go out of this land. But I will harden Pharaoh's heart, and though I multiply my signs and wonders in the land of Egypt, Pharaoh will not listen to you. Then I will lay my hand on Egypt and bring my hosts, my people, the children out of Israel, out of the land of Egypt by great acts of judgment. The Egyptians shall know I am the Lord when I stretch out my hand against Egypt and bring out the people of Israel from among them. Then the next part of the story comes, uh, in the next part of the story come the 10 plagues, the consequences that God brings on, on Egypt for their enslavement of his people. And there's this odd verse in verse 3 where it says that he would harden Pharaoh's heart until all the plagues came about. And this has stumped theologians and Christians for a long time. And we wonder, like, can God do that? Should God do that? Shouldn't God soften Pharaoh's heart? Like, if God can do that, why doesn't he just turn Pharaoh the other way and make Pharaoh like, oh, man, that, this is really bad. I shouldn't have done this. Sorry. Like, why don't you guys leave now? Like, why does God harden his heart instead of soften his heart? Well, it's a difficult question, and I'm not going to solve it in one minute. Um, But what we hear early in the story is that Pharaoh's heart is already hard towards God. So when we talk about God hardening Pharaoh's heart, we're not taking a soft heart, a good man, and moving him into a hard place, right? This is a man who is killing babies at the beginning of the the book, right? This is a man whose heart is already hard towards God. And God says, I'm going to keep him in that place of hardness towards me throughout this process so that the fullness of the plagues can see their conclusion. And you say, okay, well, maybe God's not making him a bad guy. He's just keeping him a bad guy. But why is it important for all the plagues to happen? Well, I'm glad you asked that hypothetical question. Um, <laughs> because the, the Exodus is this constellation of miracles that 
hold together in a really important story. And these 10 plagues represent the rejection of Egypt's gods. Each of the plagues are not just coincidences, like God couldn't have just rained spaghetti and meatballs from the sky. He, he chose the things he did on purpose in order to... Uh, are you you're waving for spaghetti and meatballs, Dan? Yeah, that's a, that's a blessing, not a curse, right? Yeah. All right. Uh, I've been reading too many kids' books lately. <laughs> Apparently, that's the answer that one. All right, where was I? Um, why does God choose frogs and locusts and turning the Nile to blood? And why does he choose these specific plagues? I mean, some of them seem to make sense, you know, destroying their crops. That you can see how that's applying economic pressure. But what's the deal with frogs? Like, why would God do that? Well, the answer is that Egypt's gods were represented by these 10 different uh, items that are used as plagues. And in each plague, God is announcing, you know your frog god? I wrote his down his name here. Uh, Heket? the goddess of birth who has a frog head that you guys have hieroglyphics of on your pyramids, your frog god can't even protect you from frogs. Here's a million frogs just to show you that, right? You know Set, the god of the desert storms? I'm going to bring a desert storm of gnats to show you that he can't protect you from the storms of life. You know Ra, your sun god? I'm going to turn the sun into darkness to show you that Ra is not god, but that I am god. You know Osiris, the god of crops and fertility? Let's see how... Osiris can protect you from hail. In each of these plagues, God brings about judgments not just on Egypt, but on their deities who had falsely claimed to be in control, to have authority. As Exodus 12.12 says, On all the gods of Egypt I will execute judgment, for I am the Lord. Now, okay, so those are the plagues. Um, Those are at least some of the plagues and why they exist. Let's, Let's talk about a couple objections that sometimes come up. Um, sometimes people read these plagues or read this section of scripture and say, Bob, there's just no way that would happen. Like, you couldn't just have a million frogs come out of nowhere and then just leave. That's very scientifically implausible. Or the, the Nile can't just turn into blood. Like, water can't just turn into blood. Where, where would the blood have come from? What would be the cause of the blood? How would the, the headwaters of the, the river produce that much blood? What would it come from, like an animal? And they try to come up with naturalistic readings to explain these. And I, I understand that, and I, I, I'm all for trying to think through uh, what really happened historically. But the point of this passage is that these are ridiculously unlikely events. They're meant to show that it is the hand of God behind them. These are not meant to show the natural consequences of the world. These are meant to show the divine intervention of God. In fact, often Moses will tell uh, Pharaoh, just so that you know this is God, what time do you want me to get all the frogs out of here? Just so you don't think this is just a coincidence that a bunch of frogs came. And then Pharaoh, showing that he is maybe not the sharpest you know, tool in the shed, says, tomorrow. <laughs> Why doesn't he say today? <laughs> Why do you wait for another day full of plagues? I don't know. Um, if, I, if I went to a doctor and I was in immense pain, and they said, when do you want me to take the, you know, the nail out of your hand? I'll come back tomorrow. <laughs> No, these are meant to be incredibly unlikely to show the hand of God. Now, the more difficult objection that sometimes comes up is, but why does God inflict them on all of Egypt? Like, isn't it Pharaoh that's sinning? Why destroy, you know, Joe's crops down, down the Nile? Like, why does he get his, ha- his house full of frogs? He didn't vote for the Pharaoh. This isn't a democracy. Like, it's not his fault. Um, why are all the people of Egypt suffering because of the federal choice of their leader. Um, and this gets into something that's really important to Exodus, and in fact is really important to the whole Bible, 
which is that our guilt comes um, from that which the person who represents us, in the original case of Genesis, Adam and Eve, but much more importantly, that our righteousness comes from the one who represents us, Jesus Christ, our Lord. And so Egypt collectively holds in the guilt of their leader. And if that's difficult for us as Americans who are in a democracy and believe in individualism to hold to, I, I get that. But I would also say, you know, all of Egypt benefited from the slavery of Israel. They'd all benefited economically from the oppression of the people around him. And now they're all going to bear some of the consequences. It'd be tremendously uh, unfair for them to say, yeah, we benefited from the slavery, but we don't want to take the consequences of the sin. Well, why does this matter for you and I today? You know, this is historically interesting, but it's very literally ancient history. This is, you know, 3,500 years ago. Why should you care about this in your life today? A couple things that are worth pointing out. The first thing is that Pharaoh is only willing to change when he's in pain. Did you notice that as you read through the plagues this week? You know, every time there's a plague, Pharaoh says, make it stop, make it stop, and I'll let you go. And then they make it stop, and he's like, oh, that's better. What was I saying? Oh, no, you're not leaving, right? <laughs> Exodus 8.15 summarizes it well. But when Pharaoh saw there was a respite, he hardened his heart and would not listen to them, as the Lord had said. Is that your story? You know, when there's the consequences of your sin, you say, oh, no, 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 I'm going to change. I'm going to change. I'm going to change. But when the pain of sin is removed, at least our experience of it is removed, then we re-harden our heart towards God and towards people. Uh, that's the first thing I think that's helpful for this story for your life. The, the other thing I'd really want you to notice is that God crushes his rivals, that he topples false gods that oppress his people. And for, for most of us, we probably think, okay, that's, that's fine for over there, but you know, there's no false gods in my life. But you know, the Bible talks about idolatry as something that is endemic to the human heart that all of us carry with us, whether it's the idolatry of living for greed, living for what people say about us, living for the approval of others, living for what we've accomplished, living for our career, living for pleasure, that all those things can represent idolatry. And as the New Testament calls it, the testing of our faith involves the removing of those idols from our soul. Is it a joy to you knowing that God will crush the idols of your heart? This is a process of sanctification that we all go through that, you know, for, for Egypt, we can see how God destroys their idols. But in our lives, we have to come to grips with the fact that God is going to, either in this life or the next, topple all the idols from our souls as well. Well, the first nine plagues are painful, but but somewhat uh, comical, gnats and locusts and all that. But the 10th plague that God brings is going to set up an enduring practice for all of Israel's history, one they even continue today, which is the Passover. And um, in our sermon today, for time and, and just for clarity, we're just going to talk about the first Passover. Um, for you guys who were here yesterday, the, the Passover. You remember that hand motion we did, right? The, the Passover. Uh, we'll talk in a couple weeks about the feasts of Israel's history and how those are represented um, in our practice today. So, but I want to talk about the Passover and why God does this. Why does God bring about the 10th plague that he does, the practice of the destruction of the firstborn over all of Egypt? This is how it's described in Exodus um, 29. Oh, I'm sorry, in Exodus 12, 29. At midnight, the Lord struck down all the firstborn of the land of Egypt. From the firstborn of Pharaoh who sat on his throne to the firstborn of the captive who was in the dungeon, and all the firstborn of the livestock. And Pharaoh rose up in the night, he and all his servants, and all the Egyptians. And there was a great cry in Egypt, for there was not a house where someone 
was not dead. This is such a tragic and painful passage because it didn't have to come to this, right? It came to this because of the sin, the defiance, and the hard-heartedness of Pharaoh. The tenth plague was previewed multiple times to him by Moses as a way of saying, this is going to happen unless you let the people go. But unlike the first nine plagues, the tenth plague is not different just in its intensity or its severity, but also in the participation that was required of Israel. The first nine plagues, God tells Israel, um, in the first nine plagues, God protects Israel, but without them needing to do anything. The gnats don't go in their homes. The locusts don't affect their fields. uh, The hail doesn't fall on their crops. The tenth plague, God tells Moses to go to Israel ahead of time and tell them what would happen and tell them they'll only be protected if they choose to participate. When it comes for the tenth plague to come, it's not a question of race or ethnicity. It's about the importance of the protection of the lamb. Israel has to go through an extended and costly process of slaughtering a lamb and putting its blood on the door if they want to live. And if they leave the home, if they choose not to participate, they are no more protected than the Egyptians around them. This is a preview of what would happen with Christ, right? Hundreds of years later, the prophet Isaiah would say that one day there would be a lamb, much like the Passover lamb, who would take on the sins of Israel. And when Jesus comes, John the Baptist recognizes him and says, Behold, the Lamb of God who has come to take away the sins of the world. And as Christians, we look to Jesus as that final Passover lamb, the one who will protect us from the consequences of sin and death. Now, um, what does this Passover tell us about God? You know, why does God do this? Why does God choose such a violent way to culminate the plagues? Um, if this it's hard for you to swallow this idea of such destructive death. I, I can certainly empathize with that. It is for me too. You know, I, I, there's a part of me that thinks, you know, God, couldn't you have chosen a less violent way to deliver people from slavery? But then I think about what I know about history and I say, when has a people of slavery ever been delivered violently, right? When has a people ever been taken away from slavery without much bloodshed? And the fact that God fights for Israel and protects them and carries out uh, a form of judgment that doesn't involve them having to fight is a unique gift of kindness on his part. And then, you know, the alternative often comes, well, what would I have recommended before? Would I have recommended some less violent way to persuade Pharaoh? Would I have recommended that God preview for him what would happen beforehand? Would I recommend that God would make it clear that if he doesn't obey, there are going to be dramatic consequences? Well, God did all those things. But really at the core of my objection, sort of my emotional objection to this plague, is the idea that Egypt didn't deserve this, right? That maybe this was too harsh. This was too big a penalty for what they had done. But you only have to read the beginning of Exodus to say, was it really? I mean, the Egyptians had murdered a whole generation of children of Israel. How is it unjust that God would exact the same judgment from them? The Egyptians had exploited the Israelites and uh, taken advantage of their free labor for hundreds of years. How is God uh, demanding with justice the same thing any any less fair? In our own country's shameful history with slavery and the the removal of slavery's influence on um, the removal of slavery's authority, Abraham Lincoln reflected on this passage and on this idea. 
This is from his second inaugural. And I know it's a little difficult to follow, but essentially what he's going to say in, in the inaugural, the second inaugural, is that slavery, uh, if the Civil War is a payment for our, slave, our institution of slavery, it's a just one. Listen to Abraham Lincoln. I'm not going to try to do an impression or, or beard or anything. <laughs> Fondly do we hope, fervently do we pray, that this mighty scourge of war may speedily pass away. Yet if God wills that it continue until all the wealth piled by the bondman's 250 years of unrequited toil shall be sunk and every drop of blood drawn from the lash shall be paid by another drawn with a sword, as was said 3,000 years ago, so still it must be said, the judgments of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. That's from Psalm 19. What Lincoln was saying in our own country's history is, if we've amassed wealth based on the backs of slaves, how can we complain if we lose that wealth? If we've amassed security based on the blood of another, how can we complain if our blood is now shed? It's the same thing that was going on with Egypt and Israel. If Egypt is going to lose what they'd gained unrighteously, how are they going to object? And for all of us, not just Egypt, but today, it's a reminder that the wages of sin is death, as Romans said. That it is not unjust for God to exact even our life for what we've done to sin against him. And yet, you know, we have to talk about the goodness of the story too, right? That the firstborn sons of Egypt would die for their sins and the sins of their people. But it's the firstborn son of God, the only begotten son of God, the only one who has come from God, who would die not for his sins, but for our sins. Well, this plague finally pushes Pharaoh over the edge. He drives Israelites out into the desert. But God doesn't take them to the promised land. He leads them to the side of the sea, waiting for Pharaoh to chase them. And Pharaoh, his heart still hard, does just that. As as Exodus 14 says, When Pharaoh drew near, the people of Israel lifted up their eyes, and behold, the Egyptians were marching after them, and they feared greatly. And the people of Israel cried out to the Lord, They said to Moses, Is it because there are no graves in Egypt that you have taken us away to die in the wilderness? What What have you done to us in bringing us out of Egypt? So much for gratitude, right? If you're ever discouraged as a leader that people don't appreciate you, Moses brought 10 plagues and delivered a people out of slavery, and they still weren't happy with him. Well, they're desperate about the situation. They cry out to God, and God says, No, I have not abandoned you. I brought you here for a purpose. And he parts the Red Sea by Moses and leads the people through the water. In so doing, Pharaoh's army decides, well, we're just going to go right after him because what's good for the goose is good for the gander. But that's not the story. Right? God is in control. He leads the people safely through. Pharaoh and his army follow along and they're crushed by the sea and die. As Exodus 15 will say, this is to show that God is a strong God of war the one who has protected them and delivered them and personalized their salvation. They see now that God has saved them from uh, slavery in Egypt. Well, we've got to close up our time here today, but what I want you to take away from this message, um, it's that God is the God who saves. God saves Israel from Egypt. This is a central confession of Old Testament faith, but that God is also the God who saves us as well. And our situation is even more desperate than Israel's was. While they were in slavery and bondage, we are in slavery to sin without Christ. 
And in Exodus, God saves them with his strong right hand. And in Christ, we are saved not out of his position of strength, but out of weakness, saving us from the oppression of sin. And Moses gets to be a part of this because of his faith. That Moses gets to be a part of one of the great stories in human history because he was willing and because he believed. How much more should you and I be willing to believe on the backside of seeing all that God has done in Christ? On your outline, you'll see a a passage there from Hebrews 11. I would love for you to take some time this week to meditate on that passage. As you think about Moses, maybe think about uh, what you read in Exodus. Think about how Moses models faith for us and how we can uh, likewise live out a life of faith before God. Would you join me in prayer? God, would you give us faith greater than Moses? God, would you help us to trust in your faithfulness? God, we look at what Moses did um, and we see your hand behind him. And we know that you care for people in pain and in spiritual desperation. And God, sometimes we cry out to you because that's us. And sometimes we cry out to you because we see people like that around us and we think that you don't care. God, forgive us for that mistaken assumption. Help us to see the way that you love us and you love the people around us. Help us to be as passionate about their plight as you are. Help us to uh, have a healthy perspective on your authority and on your power. Help us to fear you in a healthy way more than the world, knowing that you are truly the one who delivers and who saves. It's in your name we pray. Amen.